On the 28th of May, the National People's Congress of China passed a new security law for Hong Kong, a law which will allow for prosecution in Hong Kong for political crimes. The enactment of this legislation imposed by the authorities in Beijing on the people of Hong Kong constitutes a clear and serious breach of the joint declaration. In response, the British government has now passed a motion which will allow British national overseas passport holders in Hong Kong the opportunity to settle and apply for citizenship in the UK. China has unsurprisingly retaliated. In early June, when Britain was mulling its options, it warned the government to step back from the brink and abandon its Cold War mentality. There is, of course, read across for British companies. As Shadow Foreign Secretary Lisa Nandy said in her response to Dominic Raab's statement on Wednesday, Mr. Speaker, I wrote to him some time ago to ask him to address the direct challenge made by British companies like HSBC and Standard Chartered to the UK's stance by supporting this law. We cannot allow British businesses to become complicit in undermining the international rules-based order that they themselves rely on. And there is also a wider argument about Chinese international relations and the knock-on impact for investors hoping to gain exposure to the market. That argument has been brewing for the best part of a decade and has threatened to burst since the emergence of coronavirus at the start of this year. To a certain extent, the current China investment argument starts with Carson Block, who didn't shy away from expressing his views when we spoke to him earlier this week. If you like shorting frauds, which we do, China is the gift that doesn't stop giving. I'm fond of saying that China is to stock fraud as Silicon Valley is to technology. It is also a subject of great significance to geopolitical risk expert Derek Leatherdale, who Alex Newman spoke to a few weeks ago. I think one of the other things that, that the investment community will need to think about doing is being able more effectively to interrogate invested companies on how they are approaching the new geopolitical environment in which we find ourselves. Yes, this is a bit of a star-studded podcast, the first in a doubleheader about investing in China and the US. We've also been joined by IC podcast regulars Phil Oakley, Philip Ryland and Dave Baxter to discuss the challenges of the China investment saga. I'm Megan Boxall. And I'm John Human. Welcome to the Investment Hour. The Investment Hour. 60 Minutes of Money with the Investors Chronicle. So Chinese companies have caused problems for UK investors in the past. I mean, there was a specific period of time, John, I think you were already editor of the Investor Chronicle, that they pose a bit of a problem for uh, for us as a magazine. Yeah, um, a couple of them found their way into Simon Thompson's bargain shares portfolio one year. A couple of uh, AIM-listed uh, Chinese companies, uh, one called CamKids, uh, one called Nebu, uh, and both of them turned out to be frauds. And, um, you know, as well as being rather embarrassing, I mean, it obviously hit the performance of Simon's portfolio that year. Um, but but the, reality, the reality was, you know, these companies had presented accounts to the market. Uh, and on the basis of those accounts, Simon chose them for the portfolio. They looked like bargain shares. Um, they were frauds. They were outright frauds. Um, and, you know, that that's where the, the problem with some of these Chinese companies lies. Yeah, absolutely. And they weren't the only ones. I mean, I, I just found a quote from a money saving expert message board. Uh, it was from 2015. This message said, today, a third that I know of Chinese companies listed on AIM have been suspended and unlikely to come back. This would, this would have been sort of around the time, I guess, yeah. this message came from. Uh, there was another, Asian, Asian Citrus, which was an incredibly popular uh, company. It was, I think it was an orange grower, unsurprisingly. Um, but those shares were listed on AIM and cancelled in 2017 um, after uh, it failed to release financial results, um, accounting discrepancies of one of its subsidiaries. I mean, you know, short of saying, well, I'm not going to look at Chinese companies because they're all corrupt, 
you know, you, we were in very difficult territory with these companies. Um, you know, and you're also in very difficult territory by, by essentially calling out the, the honesty of an entire country and the companies it's listing on the market. Absolutely. And it's, it's hard to research that kind of thing. Like, as, as private investors in the UK, the extent, really, of the research that we can do is the financials. I read around the subject as much as we can what is being presented to us as investors but if what was being presented to us as investors is not correct then there's little there are a few options are there apart from as you say avoiding avoiding the market avoiding any Chinese companies listed in the UK completely yeah I mean it was it was doubly unfortunate because you know you would expect on a market like the the London Stock Exchange of which AIM is is one of its uh, markets the, the the regulatory system would protect investors from this kind of thing. Um, but we know that there are some issues with that that system, the the nomad system. And you know, you know these these companies, these nomads, you know, it felt like they hadn't done their job on these companies. But then, so you mix the the nomad situation, where, where which is potentially problematic and on in itself, with the fact that these Chinese companies can get away with misreporting their numbers based partly on the legal system in China. And yeah, it's going to, it's going to be an issue. And it's, there was similar sort of issues in the US around the same time, maybe a few years earlier than the issues came to the UK, which is something that I spoke to Carson Block, founder of Muddy Waters, about earlier this week. Uh, we, we were at the forefront, um, you know, my firm and then short activists as a, as a whole, we were at the forefront of cleaning up the U.S. exchanges um, with respect to the Chinese uh, frauds back in period from 2010 to 2012. So by 2012, I, the, the word that I repeatedly heard when it came to China was uninvestable um, from in, institutional investors. And I and I feel like that's generally the right perspective. I mean, the public equities, I don't think public equities are a good way to try to play China for various reasons. Do you still think that? Yeah, I still think that. But um, in any event, the, um, yeah, I, I, I felt like I felt very proud between 2012 and 2014. But then when Alibaba filed its S1, and this is a company where just in 2011, Jack Ma had literally stolen Ali, the Alipay subsidiary uh, from the company, uh, which was partly owned by Yahoo and, and also uh, SoftBank. And a few months later, they happened to find out, Yahoo and SoftBank happened to find out that it had just been taken without any notification by Jack Ma. He made up some excuse about, oh, you know, foreign ownership was prohibited. So I just thought I'd steal this from you guys. And he said, all right, so here's what I'll pay you for it. You know, and they, they obviously had no leverage um, in that situation. So Jack Ma is not, you know, was never here to make friends, okay, or to be friends with outside investors. So he's going public or he's taking his company public in 2014. And everybody lined up around the block for that IPO. And that was kind of a just a very that was a very disappointing moment in my career because I thought we had made a difference. And there were so many criticisms of their of uh, Alibaba's F1, its prospectus. Um, just accounts and disclosure that just were problematic in so much opacity. And yet they had no problem raising the money. And it was back to the races uh, in terms of China companies coming to the US to list. So these issues in terms of 
for investors the fact that it's happened in both in the UK and the US in the not too distant past. They're not altogether surprising when you look at the wealth and inequality and fraud statistics of China. So, for example, you've got the the Gini index, which looks at wealth inequality. Uh, And on that metric, China has a a score of 46.8, which is very, very high um, in terms of the inequality in the country. And actually, many experts believe it's it's far higher than that. Um, The the United Nations says anything over 40 is a warning level. Um, And then you've got the corruption perception index. uh, And China is ranked 87th of uh, countries globally. And that's that's 87th, where one is the best score. Yeah, and I mean... There probably aren't much more than 87 that have even been ranked. So it's uh, it's not, not great. Carson Block summed up these issues quite neatly when I asked him about why China is such a difficult market for foreign investors to navigate. The US and China, their court systems do not recognize each other's judgments. OK, and, and here's why. China does not have a real court system. All right. You want to win a court case in China then you need to find the lawyer who's going to have a better chance at bribing the judge than the other guy's lawyer does. Um, You know, just a little sidebar, but the thing about China is everybody is willing to bribe public officials. It's not, you know, are you willing to bribe a public official? It's this game that everybody has to play where the bribe is paid, but you got to, you know, everybody has to cover it up because if it ever sees the light of day, then, then you have problems. So the judge is going to sit there and take a bribe based on which lawyer he trusts not to screw the bribe up the most um, or trust the most not to screw it up. So that's kind of how you win a court case there. So, look, let's not consider recognizing judgments from China. But China naturally is not then going to recognize a judgment from the U.S. court system. So here's the thing. The SEC can get all of the awards it wants against um, somebody from China, but if that person remains in China and as far as the SEC can tell, his assets are in China, then, well, you know, what, what's what's the penalty? So when the SEC spent all of these resources investigating these cases and you have to think about the resources involved here. I mean, just the translation of documents from Chinese into English takes a lot of time and money for the SEC. And then they're sitting on all these documents they don't understand because it's a different legal system and the government is structured differently. So then they need to bring in people who can help them interpret that. Very resource intensive. So they, they expend all those resources. And then Chairman Wong is sitting in the middle of China somewhere laughing and, you know, like saying, hey, you know, maybe I'll pay you three dollars. And, you know, the SEC is no, 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 you know, pay us, you know, 50 million. And they'll eventually agree to $1 million, which is, you know, a fraction of what the chairman stole. And that's the reason the SEC agreed to it is because that's what they can get away with. So, or that's all they can get out of it. I've spoken to Philip Ryland about how the country has got itself into this position. Hi, Philip. Good to speak to you again. Hi. So looking at this in a historical perspective, how has China got to the situation that it's in? Uh, what's its growth based on and, and how much of it is window dressing? We tend to think of um, China as being a great export machine. Uh, if you're living in China um, and if you're analysing this, I think you'll see it slightly differently. And you'll think, think of three things. China's growth in simple terms has been based on, on land, use of land, on corruption, on the use of corruption and, and on the use of debt. 
looking, looking, taking, I suppose, each of those in turn. Use of land, how, how has that contributed to what we now in, in the West think of as this great growth economy? Well, you kind of, you know, land is sort of kind of important. It's a, it's a resource and it's always there. And the great thing for China is that um, the government owns all of it. So there was no problem with developing it because if the government wanted to develop a, a piece of land, it already owned it. So it could do it, no problems. The government had the land. In practical terms, what happened was that local authority officials paid paid a big part in this. They they kind of acted as sort of quasi-entrepreneurs. We don't think of local government officials as being entrepreneurs. In China, they were kind of entrepreneurial. They had a, a, a big incentive to, uh, to help develop uh, land because there were kickbacks coming to them. Yeah, I was going to say, so that leads into the corruption point then, that uh, there, there were incentives for, for these local governments to develop the land. Yeah, sure. There were, there were kickbacks to the local government officials who mm-hmm. did slightly deals with entrepreneurs to, you know, to build whatever. Um, and that was, we think of corruption always as being bad. But in, you know, in this sense, it was good because it, it, it helped to, um, it helped to oil the wheels. And the other factor was, was, was debt. There was the capacity to lend that enables projects to go ahead. But any country can only borrow so much debt. In China, in, in, in 2008, China's debt to GDP was 150%. Now, or a couple of years ago, it was two, it's 250%. So all these three things, so the use of land, the corruption of local government, in, in local government, the fact that those two sort of merged together to create this sort of industry and the fact that they, they were helped along by, by extra debt, how did that literally translate, like industry and the kind of industries that were emerging? Low value, you know, they developed low value added consumer goods, mm-hmm. which they exported in great numbers to the West. Um, that's, you know, we, we, that's what we think of as China now. Yeah. So the problem is that with all the troubles and the scepticism, and even though we know that China is not a great place to either run a business or invest, its sheer size makes it pretty hard to overlook. Indeed. It's, I mean, it's absolutely massive. Um, 1.4 billion people live there, uh, of which there um, you know, a growing middle class among them. Um, it is home to six of the world's 33 mega cities, um, and a dozen more cities are close to achieving that scale, um, which is uh, a city above a million people, which is built on the back of rural to urban migration. Uh, it's the world's biggest spender on tourism, 277 billion on non-domestic tourism last year. Uh, and that's twice the size of the next largest market, which is the US. It's the world's largest manufacturer. Um, and the scale of its trade uh, with other countries is, is absolutely vast. Um, trade between the US and China um, is 660 billion a year. Um, and uh, the US is its largest single market. So, you know, we are talking uh, an absolutely massive country here. Mm, yeah. And when a country is that big and that dominant in, I mean, in so many different markets and it covers such a broad range of, uh, of investment opportunities, uh, the, the importance of it, the significance of it, it's hard to overlook. And that is something that Alex Newman spoke to Derek Leatherdale, who set up HSBC's internal geopolitical risk team. He spoke to him about this situation a few weeks ago. Geopolitics do not necessarily represent an insuperable barrier uh, to companies operating um, uh, in the way that they have. But that probably the trick here is for those companies that, that wish to continue to operate business models on a global basis, 
need to get better. They need to get smarter at anticipating uh, geopolitical uh, sort of pain points, if you like, uh, and, and need to get better at thinking through in advance how to respond to those uh, and how to navigate those. And, and tying this back to an investor perspective, I think one of the other things that, that the investment community will need to think about doing is uh, being able more effectively to interrogate in invested companies on how they are approaching uh, the, the, the new geopolitical environment in which we find ourselves. For the, it seems to me there's a more important question for investors about how fast geopolitical risks are, are liable to to emerge is is that a is that a useful way of of, of thinking think about things more generally aside from the specific spikes in volatility that is part of is part of you know global affairs anyway um, the short answer i think is is yes so so one of the the features of the geopolitical landscape in which we find ourselves I think perhaps uh, underpinned by, for instance, the emergence of social media and new technology is that, that geopolitics sort of, as it were, happens faster um, uh, than, it, than perhaps it used to 20 or 30 years ago uh, or, or longer. Um, uh, and, and that um, issues uh, can, can arise and uh, sort of unpredictable actions by different capitals um, or different political figures uh, can happen with, with probably less notice um, uh, than, than might have been the case um, uh, decades ago. Uh, for me, the conclusion from that point is um, is that it's, it's ever more important that, that uh, companies operating globally in whatever sector uh, try to think more actively in advance about uh, how they can preserve value um, and value for, for shareholders um, uh, in an environment of, if you like, not only higher volatility, um, uh, but also higher volatility that happens more quickly. Um, in a sense, the, the point about the timing and the tempo of this is that it makes it more important, not less, for companies to uh, to anticipate some of these issues, even if in anticipation you can't anticipate perfectly what may happen. It is still possible to uh, think through uh, the broad currents and put in place some preparations and some, um, you know, in, in the kind of jargon of this stuff, you know, put in place the right kind of risk management and risk mitigation. Yeah, and, and I would say investment uh, managers should be doing the same, you know, that they've got their own uh, uh, risk management infrastructures uh, and they could and they should be using that more effectively on this agenda. I suppose. I suppose the, the question there is: is you can prepare for things, but is there is there actually anything that um, uh, companies and let's take for example companies of real scale with the ability to do this with you know with mm. uh, lobbying power, for example, can they actually can they proactively manage geopolitical risk in the in do, do you think in the you know in in twenty twenty i.e. are there channels for them to I suppose lobby on you know lobby governments directly to um, to, to sort of bend, you know, bend the arc of whatever's coming next their way? Um, yes and no. There are certainly channels. And um, as you mentioned in the introduction, I spent several years um, working in HSBC's group government affairs function. Um, 
I think broadly there are some things which large companies can lobby on and lobby on quite effectively, typically sort of questions here of economic policy, of domestic economic policy or or domestic regulation uh, on the regulatory front. Um, you know, a, a number of, well, large companies generally also try and lobby at the international standard setting level. The problem with geopolitics is that it's less prone and, and governments in general are less likely to listen to lobbying when it comes to questions of what they perceive to be national security. Um, uh, and and it, it sometimes actually the dynamic works the other way around. As we've seen with HSBC, you know, it, it would appear from the media reporting that, um, uh, that um, HSBC, uh, as it were, was expected to um, uh, indicate a degree of support for Beijing's wish to extend the national security law to Hong Kong, um, and that's not the kind of thing typically that you can you can l- lobby against as a large company because it's it's just such a sensitive area of, of policy making in governments. Interesting to note the reports in the Telegraph about HSBC again, um, uh, apparently lobbying uh, the government. Uh, on behalf of uh, Huawei and uh, over the five G matter, which I thought was was another interesting spin in the um, you know the recent tale for HSBC. But, yeah. Absolutely, uh, fascinating. I, I saw those reports too. Yeah, so I mean, maybe just staying with that um, the 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 US China uh, uh, theme or cleavage, because it's I suppose in geopolitical terms, it's it's going to be at the top of of uh, of the I suppose the the, the risk agenda for many large companies and, and, and how investors think about um, geopolitical risk more generally. Um, so, I mean, some people think we're on the brink or may, you know, may already be in a new kind of Cold War between the US and China. And uh, uh, I, I, I mean, you mentioned at the, the top that COVID-19 you know, has the capacity to you know, potentially accelerate this and other geopolitical risks um, at the moment. So, I mean, specifically, if we are in an increasingly fraught um, you know, uh, polarized world with with the, the US and China, the two two great powers. What does that that geopolitical risk involve in, in all of that mean for your average blue chip company with either global ambitions or a multi continental mm. presence? And I suppose specifically thinking about UK companies and you know European companies and, and UK investors, where do they fit into this worldview? Because in many senses, you know, you're you're, you're caught between these two poles. Yeah, I think that's probably right. I mean, to the first point that you raised, Alex, are we are we already in or on the verge of a new kind of Cold War uh, with capital C, capital W? Um, uh, I, I, I'm personally, I'm not sure that's uh, um, that is a more semantic, perhaps a more theoretical discussion that doesn't necessarily help advance kind of practical realities. Broadly speaking, I think the the point here is that whether it's a Cold War or not a Cold War or um, uh, or, or whatever other label, um, I think we we are moving into a phase of more intense U.S.-China uh, competition, more in- intense U.S.-China mistrust, um, um, and that that will play out across a number of issues as we've seen it play out in respect of Hong Kong, with uh, the U.S. declaration that, or the U.S. State Department's um, uh, declaration that, that, in their view, uh, China is no longer upholding the the one country, two systems uh, approach. 
Um, but but there are a myriad of other you know possible um, sort of interfaces of tension in the South China Sea, the East China Sea, and the military activity that goes on you know, uh, in, in both of those um, theatres, uh, as well as in things like um, you know in particular industry sectors. So Huawei is the obvious one, you know tech, comms, uh, and all of that. What does that mean for UK businesses and UK investors? Um, I, I think in part it means that if they are aiming to uh, operate uh, in a way that sort of cuts across those divisions, um, then at the very least they need to be pretty savvy about um, uh, A, what that external risk environment looks like and how it's evolving, um, uh, and B, need to think through what possible impacts there might be if that tension gets worse. Um, uh, and um, on the back of that, then perhaps think about what sort of, if you like, um, mitigation or what contingency planning uh, they would need to have in place. I think there's a sort of a, a more detailed set of considerations for investors, um, uh, particularly where they're, they're investing across asset classes, across geographies, across different types of industry sectors. Um, the way the way investment managers use their their existing risk infrastructure to manage this, I think, will be really key to preserving value um, and certainly minimising, if you like, the hit from any uh, from any future market volatility. So we'll go on to talk about blue chips uh, in a minute with uh, with Phil Oakley, but let, let's um, just first revisit that lobbying point that Derek made. Um, what, what, what does he mean by that? And, and you know, what sort of companies are we talking about, Megan? Yeah, so it's it, it's an interesting, and especially actually from his point of view, uh, he was obviously uh, integral in in HSBC and uh, and actually in setting up HS the, uh, a real part of HSBC that specifically looked at geopolitical risk. I mean, most of that at the moment being US-China tensions. So an HSBC is actually something that, as we heard in the clip at the beginning from Lisa Nandy, she is calling out HSBC and its peer, Standard Chartered, for not condemning the China's policy on Hong Kong at the moment. And and as, as you heard at the beginning, she said that's not the kind of behaviour we want our big companies to get away with. HSBC, obviously, a- any company which has such a strong footprint in China is uh, is sort of interwoven in this political risk and it's almost impossible to get out of. And the point that Derek Leatherdale makes is that actually these companies do have quite a strong position to lobby government, both in terms of their where they're domiciled, so HSBC obviously domiciled in the UK, but with huge operations in China, it has it's in a position to lobby governments on both sides of the spectrum, which actually puts it in a pretty powerful position. And we've seen that as well with, I mean, specifically with Huawei in China. It's it's in quite a powerful place. Yeah. So Huawei is the um, the controversial company that's at the uh, heart of the current discussion around the UK's uh, telecoms infrastructure upgrade. And there's a lot of pressure on government to um, rescind um, the perhaps contracts have been awarded to it or or limit its ability to get involved in the UK's uh, telecoms upgrade. Um, and the same is happening in, in other industries, too. Uh, China has been brought on board as a partner for, for building the, the country's um, new fleet of uh, nuclear power stations, one of them not far from where I live. Um, and there is great concern about this. Lisa Nandy has also expressed concern specifically about uh, these two projects. Yeah, and both of them, both of these companies that are, uh, so Huawei and the companies involved in the nuclear projects, they are partly state-owned. 
And in terms of both of those things, they're really significant to our daily life. Obviously, nuclear energy is something that we're all aware of and it's quite a terrifying thought having uh, having a different state government in charge of our nuclear energy. And actually, with data and telecoms as well, that's a huge part of the data argument. Who actually controls our data if, if a, a different government is, is managing our telecoms networks? Absolutely. I mean, you know, telecoms networks are absolutely vital to the running of a country. You know, perhaps this idea that they could just be shut down at the click of a button by a foreign power is is actually, you know, at the front of people's minds. Mm. I mean, Huawei is a controversial company. It's had a controversial history. Um, you know, it was founded by uh, a former Chinese military guy. Um, there have been lots of suggestions over the years um, as to where its technology has come from. Um, and, um, you know, it does actually seem to be a company that has built up its global position on a cost basis and, and at the same time really damaged the ability of, of Western telecoms equipment providers to compete. And mm. you know, Western governments are not flush with cash. And this is why you know, the likes of um, uh, George Osborne and David Cameron were so keen to get into bed with China. Um, if you remember, Megan, the, uh, the photos of uh, President Xi Jinping having a pint with, uh, with David Cameron. You know, this was a big thing. You know, we were in, in austerity at the time. China was the solution. Um, yeah. And now there are great concerns about that. National security concerns. Yeah. And we're talking about Huawei at the moment with in terms of 5G and should it be allowed in the 5G, the new 5G network. It's already in the 4G and the 3G network. It already has a role in, in our telecoms, which that, that comes back to the cost. BT and Vodafone the UK's big telecoms companies, they couldn't afford, and the UK government couldn't afford to roll out its own software and hardware and technology in its telecoms networks. So it re- relied on Huawei. We're now in this situation where it, uh, it, it, people are getting worried about it and it's going to be quite hard to unravel. There's more about the China story in the podcast with Derek Leatherdale, including the role that regulation play in helping fund managers navigate investing in China. Um, is there going to come a time when the US restricts the number and the type of Chinese companies that can list in the US as an example that's something Carson Block would no doubt have an opinion on yeah absolutely and you can hear both interviews say with Carson Block and Derek Leatherdale in full on Monday when we'll be launching their brand new IC podcast series the IC interviews which includes many many more Carson Block corkers like this one it's like oh well you know China's you know growing at 8% yes but the numbers aren't real So let's go back to that big question. How are China's size and growth significant to Western investors? To answer it, we've sought the help of Phil Oakley and Philip Ryland. So let's have a listen to both those interviews. Phil, big blue chips on the FTSE 100, such as AstraZeneca, Burberry, Diageo and Rolls-Royce, have all done good business in China recently. How do we rate their prospects? Is this the way that UK investors should get their exposure to, to the China growth story? Those sort of companies don't really don't really excite me as much as, say, some of the specialist niche in engineering companies that we've got. I mean, one of, the big theme, one of the big themes, obviously, in China is its manufacturing might. You know, it, it has become the workshop of the world, but it has become, but, it, but not in high-end stuff. You know, it makes a lot of the, you know, the mass-produced, cheap-end manufacturers and the sort of high-end value-added problem-solving stuff is still very much in the hands of western companies and at the moment 
Chinese economy needs the stuff that these Western companies are making to make everything work for them. So you've got companies, you know, like Spirex Sarco, which is a company, probably one of my favourite companies in the UK, which is um, has the steam technologies business, which is used for all kinds of stuff, you know, heating, sterilisation, that kind of stuff. Um, Redishaw, Spectrus, Rotalk, these companies are, you know, got reasonably significant and growing businesses in, in China. And I quite like that as a play because I like them as a play anyway, as problem solving businesses, as niche problem solving businesses with not a lot of competition. And they're just doing it in China. You know, don't get, don't almost don't think of it almost as a Chinese issue. Just see it as a, another market as where they can um, ply their trade. One of the um, advantages these kind of companies have is that what they do is very complicated um, and, and in essence can't be copied. It's very hard to compete with them. But, but China has a bit of a reputation for taking complicated technologies and copying them. Um, is, is this a risk for companies like Renishaw and, and, and Spirax? Oh, yeah. And it, and, it, and, it ha- and it has been for some time. I, I remember walking around a factory about 15 years ago in Hampton, in, in sort of South London. And it was owned by, by Fenner, which is, uh, was a really, really good British, British engineering company. And it made these high-integrity high seals, probably about as big as, you know, if you, if you sort of make an O sign with your, your forefinger and your thumb, they were about as big as that, and they sold for over a thousand quid a time because they were they were put in applications that were either performance critical or safety critical. And it was the brand was called Horlite. And I was walking around this factory with the chief executive of Fenner, and I said, "What's your biggest biggest fear?" He says, "Seeing a copy of Horlite in China." And did it happen? As far as, I, far as I'm aware, it, it never happened. But it was right at the top of this chief executive's mind. And, um, yeah, it's a, re- it's a real problem. And, you know, it does, it, does sort of, it does sort of hammer home that if you have a business operating in China, how you go about it is very, very important. And it's no surprise that, that a lot of these companies have – either not quite partnered up with the Chinese, but they've become, made sure that they've become part of part of the landscape, the local landscape, industrial landscape. Yeah, and the reason they do this is to get, get past this worry that they are seen as something to attack rather than something to embrace and be part of the Chinese economy. Chinese business community. I mean, you, you mentioned the word industrial because these are supplies of industrial equipment that, that, that has helped China to become the workshop of the world as, as, you, as you describe it. Um, but I mean, China is going, uh, it's going through a large shift. I mean, part of its, you know, its, uh, its new plan is to shift more from manufacturing to consumption, domestic consumption um, and, and consumer spending. Is that a risk to these companies? Probably not. I mean, it might, it might, it may well be a risk in terms of the growth that they can get, but it's difficult to, to think that the the activities that they're supplying into China today 
are going to disappear. Um, so, I mean, China. I mean, I mean, China. I mean, I'm sure you probably had this discussion earlier. I mean, it's very difficult for the likes of us to to, to work out what's actually going on because you know you hear about the shift of consumer economy, and then you think, well, is that really a smart idea? You know. It's actually become wealthy by being a producer and an exporter. If you know, if you look, if you look through history, and you look at how co- how countries became became wealthy, um, a lot of it is through production, not consumption. And mm. you know, you start getting into like the levels of consumer credit and and the levels of debt in the Chinese economy already, and you think that's probably the biggest risk facing. Anybody looking at investing in this country, there are economic risks. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, if, if that trend is true, if that is the direction the country's going in to become more consumer-led, to become, you know, more of a, a value-added manufacturer, um, then, then there, there probably still is a role for companies like Renishaw. I'm absolutely, absolutely sure of it. Should we be also looking for um, plays on targeting the Chinese consumer? A little bit, yes. Um, I mean, the, the caveat is I think I think China is a very very difficult market to break into. I think if you look at the fact that Amazon hasn't been able to basically break into China because of the likes of Alibaba, um, shows you that you know a play on the Chinese consumer is very very tough. But one one company that I looked at uh, last week. Um, which is doing very well out of selling into um, to Chinese consumers is Cranswick, which um, essentially is you know pork and poultry business, and they are selling bigger and bigger amounts of pork into China. Is, is this a temporary thing though? Because obviously we've had uh, African swine flu, which has wiped out a huge proportion of the Chinese pig herd. Is this just a you know a, a temporary boost for Cranswick, or is this a, a structural shift in its market? Good question. I would say that I would say that there's some permanence to this. Cranswick is just not selling, you know, legs of pork. It's got a sort of premium element to it as well in terms of in terms of what it offers. Um, there's no doubt that it's making it's making some probably one-off gains now because of African swine flu. Um, but the business was there before African swine flu. And it may well be that it becomes entrenched from a quality perspective that in terms of if you actually look at the provenance of the product and then you you know you may sort of like go into sort of the the premium side of it. I would say that 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 um Cranswick has got a foothold in this market that's probably going to see it do quite well for the next few years I and mean, we have seen some companies some British companies. Go over to China and you know tr- try to expand aggressively. Tesco, Tesco had a had a big pop at China, didn't work out so well, um, even though it's it's a massive and growing consumer market. Um, and and you know I, I think something else to to be aware of is that that actually we, and we talk about China's growing wealth and and China's middle class, but but actually GDP per capita there is still quite low, and which which suggests to me that there could be a barrier to that could be a barrier to entry for some companies. Yeah, definitely. You know, it's like it's like anything, but I mean, you know, it's often often discussed when it comes to e- economy and wealth that it's actually how that wealth is is distributed that is the key issue, not the actual size of the size of the cake. 
I mean, it's the case in, in this country. You know, people always say that, you know, we're the fifth or sixth largest economy in, in the world. But if you actually spread it per head, we're about the 30th, 30th wealthiest. And, um, yeah, the ability, the ability of people to have money in their pockets to buy the stuff that company makes is all, is all important. I mean, it's like, you know, it's like Apple. You know, Apple sells expensive smartphones and there are some rich Chinese people who want to own an Apple. But most, most Chinese people can't afford to own an Apple, so they own a Huawei instead or a Lenovo. And, um, yeah, the ability, the ability of the consumer to pay is, is a key consideration here. Is is this a trend we should be concerned about for those companies that are targeting China uh, for, for the size of their market? That that actually, it will be Chinese companies that win that that battle and not Western companies. Not necessarily. I think you know if if you if you look at you know look at the companies that I am you know I was talking about earlier, like the Spirex, Sarcos of this world. A lot of it boils down to how big a chunk of the customer's spending are you responsible for? Now, a 700 quid iPhone in the eyes of a, of, a, of a Chinese consumer is a big chunk. Um, selling, selling something, selling a bit piece of kit into a company's day-to-day operating expenditure is a different matter. And that applies not just to the Chinese, but also the whole world. But, but in terms of the consumer story... You know, you, we do see lots more Chinese brands being very successful. Um, you know, I think, uh, take the world of finance, for example. You know, Western financial companies are desperate to break into this market. But China has, has, has a lot of companies who are involved in, the, in, obviously, the banking industry and the fintech industry, the payments industry. It, it, it's a big prize, but hard to crack, especially with that, that domestic competition. Yeah, I agree. I mean, if you look at Alibaba, so, you know, Ali, Alibaba is... On one side is the Chinese equivalent of Amazon, but it also has it's also um, a fintech business. So it has a payments business, which is bigger than PayPal. It has uh, a mobile payments business, which is you know um, you know like Apple Pay or Google Pay or Samsung Pay. It has a cloud com- computing business which is growing rapidly. It's not making them any money at the moment, but it, but it is growing very, very quickly, which means that it's gaining a foothold that, you know, that Amazon or Microsoft are not going, going to gain. Then you have you know, other companies like Tencent, which is you know, a media company, social media company. You don't have Facebook in China because it's banned. So Facebook... Facebook just cannot get into into China anyway, and I, I think there is a, there is a trend of you know the Chinese are you know are going to look to produce a lot of stuff and a lot of services themselves, and they're not going to be this you know great opportunity for Western companies to come along and and get a sizable share of the pie, and that's why I think that it's. Um, more of a sort of niche approach, specialist approach that's probably going to work rather than a sort of mass mass consumer approach. Um, I, I don't particularly see 
many Western companies that can really, really make hay out of China, to be quite honest. I can see, I can see specialist niches who do well be- across the world because, of, because they have those characteristics doing okay in China, but I, I struggle. I, I struggle to see um, to see where the wh- you know where the gold mine is here. I mean that that, that exposure, the emer- you know general emerging markets exposure, but China China in particular was was often you know I, I remember looking back at Diageo and Unilever, and this is the thing that investors wanted. They wanted to access that growth through companies like Diageo and Unilever, and they were pre- prepared to pay a massive premium for it. Do you think? Do you think you know is that still the case? And do you think you know that premium is justified? The thing what you've got to bear in mind is you've got to almost look at it on a case-by-case basis. And you've got to look at the products that these companies are selling and saying, look, how easy is it to copy? How easy is it for a, for a local manufacturer to set up in competition against some of these global brands? Now, something like premium premium spirits that Diageo is selling, like, you know, Johnny Walker Black Label, a stable of single malts, um, selling into the high-end luxury market or, or, you know, premium market, luxury market, that's very hard for someone in China to go and set up and and sell. It doesn't have the same sort of attraction. There isn't, but these are aspirational purchases, and therefore, someone like Diage, I would say, is fairly well placed. Somebody like Unilever, or or say Reckitts, um, less so, because, because I think one of the big big trends that you are seeing in in emerging markets is local brands, private label brands, which are cheap. You know, a lot a lot of the stuff that these you know the the, the likes of Unilever and Reckitts are selling can be replaced by cheap generics or by more sort of artisan craft brands, which is not going to be a massive market in a market like China anyway. So I'm, I'm, less, I'm less positive about consumer goods, consumer branded goods on that, in that type of area because, because I just don't think they have the competitive strength to, to tap into the demographics and characteristics of, of the economies and markets of places like China. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, thanks, Phil. It sounds like, uh, you know, if you want to, uh, as an investor, play, play the China trend through, through individual shares, you've, you've really got to basically choose carefully. But on that theme, I think one of, the, one of the interesting themes, you know, you could own shares in Alibaba or Tencent. Scott, I was, I was reading the annual report. I've been reading the annual report, Scottish Mortgage Trust, over the last few weeks. They got tw- over 20, I think just over 21% of their investments are in China, and a large a large chunk of that is Alibaba and Tencent. But they do have some other, and they have they have some private Chinese companies as well. And Ant Financial is a big one, isn't it? Which is another payments, uh, abstract banking, banking type fintech company. Yeah, that's the AliPay side. But yeah, that's about two and a half percent of um, Scottish Mortgage Trust portfolio, and it's a it's a privately owned privately owned Chinese business. So there is there is a big sort of Chinese theme in there, which um, to me makes it makes another reason why, you know, I think Scottish Mortgage Trust is quite interesting. It's doing something different. It's had a tremendous run this year, Scottish Mortgage Trust. To me, what fascinates me about, about that fund 
is it's one of the few funds out there. But it's an, in, it's an investment trust, which I like. I like closed-end funds. I like, I like the fact that the closed-end fund allows the manager, it gives the manager a, you know, a permanent pot of money that he doesn't have to give back. He or she doesn't have to give it back. So they can invest in these illiquid private companies. And it's not that you're not going to get a problem with it um, in terms of you get a market panic and people asking for their money back. But it allows them to take a long-term view. And it's and it's very much, it's almost, you know, it's almost sort of part equity fund, part venture capital almost. Um, and they, you know, you can you can either like it or loathe it. But you can't say that it isn't trying to do something different. And I, I applaud it for that. I mean, not only because of its fantastic investment performance over the last few years. It's just, you know, you've got as an active fund manager doing something genuinely different from the crowd and succeeding at it and articulating why they do it superbly well. Yeah, I mean, it feels that their success is is built on you know tapping into the right thing, identifying and tapping into the right themes. It's very very much a thematic approach. Tech is obviously a huge theme behind it, and I and I think tech takes you. I mean, it's got big investments in U.S. companies as well. So you know, but China is becoming a, a tech power, powerhouse in its own right, as you say. So uh, yeah, definitely worth keeping an eye on. Cheers, Phil. Thanks, John. So Philip, we've talked about the situation China got itself into to a certain extent. In the West, people think that that growth is going to be maintained. Firstly, can it be maintained? And and secondly, if not, why not? It may be maintained, but there's no there's no immutable law which says that it will be maintained. It was a common assumption in the 1950s and 1960s that Russia would the, the Russian economy would grow to be the biggest in the world. <laughs> That was that was conventional wisdom. That wasn't doubted. It was stated as fact. Mm. The Russian economy would grow to be the biggest in the world in the 1970s or the 1980s. Clearly, it didn't happen. So, therefore, it doesn't have to happen in China. We assume that China's will, you know, that China's economy will overtake the U.S. in X number of years' time. X not being a very big number, mm-hmm. but it doesn't necessarily have to happen because it's fairly clear that in order to maintain its growth. China needs to do several things. When I say China, basically I mean the Chinese government, Mm -hmm. the Communist Party. It needs to do several things. First of all, and maybe most important, uh, it needs to create a proper welfare state. Yeah, so what's the situation in the moment like with the welfare state and also the healthcare situation as well? Yeah, in crude terms, they don't have much of one. You know, we think of China as being able to throw up hospitals in two or three days uh, when when needed, when facing a pandemic. Well, that's probably more PR than, than, than reality. China has a, a so-so healthcare system, a healthcare system which is somewhere between uh, the third world and the, and the developed world. It has a, a welfare system which is closer to, to the third world than to, uh, than to a developed world. Clearly, it needs to do that because... If it's going to grow, increasingly it has to grow by internal consumption. People need to be encouraged to spend. Chinese consumers, they spend a lot, but they don't spend enough. Also, there aren't enough of them. There needs to be more middle-class people who will be prepared to spend. 
in order to do that, they need a proper welfare state, mm. amongst other things. It's a funny concept, isn't it? That there aren't enough of them. There, are, but like you say, it is. It's about who those people are and what the capacity they have to spend. So, I mean, how how do demographics come into this? The demographics they come in a big way. China's demographics are horrible. For which I suppose, in crude terms, you can blame Mao Zedong uh, and his one-child policy. There's a bit more to it than that, but basically, China is getting old. You know, there is the phrase that、um, China will get old before it gets rich, and that's a problem. We haven't mentioned that part of China's growth was based on the fact that it, it, it had a demographic dividend; it had a young workforce, which it could import from the country, from the country, the countryside into the cities, and、uh, and that was a big factor. That's kind of run out now. China's working population is starting to shrink. China's school-age population is is shrinking even more. So there are, there are big demographic problems. The country is getting too old. Not only that, there's this horrible imbalance between boys and girls. For every hundred girls born in China, there are something like 125 boys. I wow. Yeah, you know, it's not real,、mm. and it creates it creates big problems.、Mm. It's one of the reasons why consumers won't spend because nowadays. In order to get a wife, a Chinese boy nowadays, a nice, you know, a nice middle-class Chinese boy, he has to come with a dowry. He has to come with a dowry. He has to come with、um, a long list of educational achievements, and he probably has to have a top job as well.、Mm. You know, the pressure that puts on these poor boys, you know, you 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 can't imagine it. No, no, I really, really can't. So, when you think of it in that way, and like. Obviously, like you say, we saw the hospitals being put up quickly, and and China paints a good picture of itself. But it is the picture. I mean, as far as we know, all it is is the picture that it's painting. When it, you actually think about what's happened, what happens in China, it's hard to believe that they are going to be able to grow based on domestic consumption. Like how how possibly can can that happen? Well, it it has happened.、Uh, you know, you go to Shanghai, you go to Beijing. I've got a brother-in-law in Shanghai, and believe me, Shanghai is real.、Mm. It's enormous.、Uh, mm. you, know, you look at Shanghai from the from the window of、uh, a a fortieth-floor flat, and all you see is tower blocks stretching out. I mean, for twenty miles or more. You know, Shanghai is big. It exists. It's real, and that's true of other、uh, big Chinese cities. China has achieved an awful lot. And you know, you might argue that the simple, the simple momentum of that growth will continue、uh, for some while yet.、Um, let's face it: even if China's growth halved in the coming years, it would still be faster than the United States' growth.、Um, so it would still be a huge force to be reckoned with, and you know, therefore, one would imagine、uh, a huge force in which investors would want to、uh, want to have money. Yeah, absolutely. I mean that that final point. That's really interesting. That、uh, even if yeah, you think of half the economic growth, that sounds catastrophic. But actually, in terms of quite how fast China has been growing, it's still not that bad. Well, even if one takes sort of fairly fairly tough statistics and say that you know, okay, look, China's real growth has only been let's say six percent. This is six percent real growth above inflation.、Hmm. Cut that in half, you've still got three percent. Three percent is still slightly more than the West can do. Well, the West can manage three percent in a good year, but you know it won't be managed. It won't be doing that any time soon. And more like two to two and a half is is a sort of 
a reasonable pace of growth which we expect from uh, from uh, from the European economies. So, you know, China far bigger would still be growing a bit faster anyway. Awesome. Well, thanks, Philip. Really, really good to talk to you and put put a lot of the investment questions into some real perspective. Okay, you're welcome. Thanks. So on that point, how do investors navigate investing in Asia, specifically China? We're going to talk to Dave Baxter. But before we do, here's here's Carson Block to paint paint the more negative picture just one last time. And China, I mean, I'm pretty sure I can guess the answer, but you wouldn't touch a Chinese company long right now, I assume. I mean, I haven't. the, The few companies that we've come across over the years where we thought they were real, um, or the financials were real for Chinese companies. They were not exciting companies. They were not fast growth companies. And that that's the reality of doing business in China. While maybe the economy is growing quickly, and again, we can talk about whether the numbers are real or not, or well, not, to what extent they're not real. But the problem, the inherent problem in China is that it's the most cutthroat business environment on the planet. And you know, capital access to capital has not been a problem in that market since you know the early 2000s. So the moment a company is doing really well, then competition just floods into the market, driving down margins, and you have to compete against all of these guys who have, you know, what I used to call when I lived in and did business in China, six month business plans. Like they don't care about the long term; they're going to make as much money in the near term as possible by commoditizing your product or your service. So it's a very, very difficult business environment. And plus, a lot of times, I mean, it's it's extremely political, but not in a functional political sense. It's, again, can you form a relationship with government officials, you know, and if you form the right ones, and, you know, this is one of my concerns. I, I suspect that in the early days, there were certain government people who went around and just said, okay, you, you give this business up. Here's all you get. And if you don't say yes, then here's what we can do. We can call the tax bureau in. We can audit you. And we're going to find all kinds of reasons to throw you in prison. So do you want $5 for your business or do you want to go to prison? And so that that's the sort of thing that routinely happens in China business is you get government thugs to align with you and put down your competition or interfere with that with your competition. So again, how do you how do you really have a sustainable high growth business in that environment? It's very 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 difficult. So the companies that we thought were real were the ones that looked pretty human and pretty boring. Um, but at least you know we can make an investment decision based on the numbers rather than, you know, based on fake information. So that's the positive. But there there have been relatively few of those companies we've come across uh, over the years from China. Okay, so Dave, what what do in fact that's the big question, is it? What do you need to consider if you're if you're investing in in the region in general and actually specifically in China? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, if you look at the region, so if you're looking at Asia or emerging markets, um, one issue is that China is almost unavoidable. Um, so, for example, 
look at the two main um, indices that active managers refer to in those areas, so MSCI Emerging Markets and MSCI AC Asia X Japan, um, each of those have something like 40% um, in China. So it's very difficult to get around. So you need to consider that um, if you're going for a kind of broader approach. Um, and also you just need to think of um, how heavy a weighting some of those kind of bigger Chinese names have um, in those markets as well. So especially uh, Alibaba and Tencent. Um, again, if you if you look at those indices that I refer to, um, they're the two biggest holdings in each and um, they represent something like between 12 and 15% um, of each. So really you need to, particularly if you're backing an active fund manager, um, you need to look at what kind of exposure they're taking um, to China, how much they're taking uh, and what form they're taking. If you want to get into China but avoid like the overweight Alibaba, that's a difficult thing for investors to get around if they want exposure to that kind of that China growth. Yeah, it's it's incredibly difficult. Um, it's it's almost a similar problem to uh, what you see with the fangs in the US. Uh, so they're such a big part of um, the market. Also, they've in many kind of times recently they've they've led performance. So if you're a kind of active fund manager, uh, then it's really it's a huge career risk not to have much in those uh, in those companies. And you have to at least have something in order to kind of keep yourself close to the index um and it, it's generally it's generally going to be very rare to find managers that don't have anything um in those kind of companies uh similarly if you go back to kind of asia em funds it's going to be very rare to find managers who don't have much in china um, and if they do they're going to have very uh kind of niche off index approaches so really you have to be kind of um buying them for their specific process um, for the specific kind of companies they're buying and not so much as, you know, a source of like core exposure to Asia or emerging markets or as just a simple China play. Right. So so you actually, if you're looking for the, the growth, the, the growth in Asia exposure, there isn't really any way around. You're, you're going to be you're going to be overweight China. You're going to be overweight Alibaba Tencent. Predominantly, yes. Yeah, there, there are a few exceptions. So there are a few active names here and there. So, um, for example, in the investment trust space, there's a trust called Pacific Assets. Um, that's run by a, um asset manager called um, Stuart Investors. Uh, they tend to focus, they're really kind of stock picky. Um, they focus on individual companies uh, that they will kind of engage with. And they will often focus on these companies improving on metrics like sustainability um, as a source of returns. Um, I was going to mention, though, when you um, there is an option when you look at passives. Um, so you do have a few trackers that will go uh, kind of ex-China or very low China. So um, just to give you a couple of examples, there's a just an index tracker fund, iShares Pacific X Japan, that has barely anything in China. Um, and in the ETF space, uh, Lixor, a kind of smaller provider, launched um, an ex-China emerging markets ETF just last year. So there are, if, if you want to go really radical and go entirely non-China, there are now a couple of options, but it, it's pretty limited. Mm. Okay, so... 
we've kind of like we've covered the negative and we know that we know the risks and and now we know how to potentially avoid them as well are there positives i mean obviously there are positives what what are the positives of of investing in china and and in the and in the region in general and and how how do you get as safe an exposure to that as possible yeah it's really interesting it's, it's kind of hard to make those positive comments um uh, listening to some of the comments you played earlier, uh, really scathing remarks. Um, but I, I guess with China, some of the uh, some of the case for it, even if you are kind of um, acknowledging things like corruption and difficulties and kind of lack of transparency in the market, a lot of that kind of you know demographic growth, a lot of those trends are still there, um, and you still have kind of very innovative. Um, companies in areas like tech, for example. So you look at some very successful uh, investors we've discussed before, Scottish Mortgage, for example, really like kind of Chinese tech names. Um, So, yeah, one option may be simply to go with, you know, really uh, established investors with a really good process who kind of seem to know what what they're talking about. But then if you hark back to those comments, perhaps it just seems like people are, I don't know, kind of turning a blind eye to it and trying to ride that market momentum. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, perhaps you can hope for improvements as China becomes even bigger, um, is kind of subject to more scrutiny as those companies, some of them at least want to look for kind of more of a global reach. Perhaps we'll see some better governance. My, my feeling my feeling is that that process is what matters if you want to get exposure to China. Um, yeah. The process that people like Scottish Bull, which have in place. So when I was writing a, a recent piece uh, uh, for our uh, a supplement we produced on Asia, you know, I discovered that it's it's uh, A shares of which there are probably about sort of uh, four thousand of them. Um, pretty much half to three quarters don't have any analyst coverage. Um, so, so you know, actually getting information on these companies, uh, you know, really understanding their accounts, it's a different language. So, you know, I mean, that's that's really that's really quite hard too. So, so the the process and the local knowledge, I, I you know, I, I I can't imagine that I would want to invest in anyone who is is just jumping into China without any mm. any sort of process in place. You know, I I think it's the process that matters here. Yeah, that, that reminds me. A few years ago, I was speaking to um, sort of professional investor who buys funds. And they were actually overhauling their approach to China um, because they were struggling to find fund managers who actually spoke Chinese and had that, what you're talking about, that kind of local edge, that ability to really kind of understand the market and the customs and how everything works. And the culture and the, it's, mm. it is very different. To, it's very, very different to what we're used to in the West, um, the way they do business, the way they speak to each other, every, like there are so many things which are yeah vastly different. So yeah, for a real understanding of the local processes is is surely crucial. I would have thought also the ability to just go and kick the tires, which is you know how, how Carson Block has actually you know really really made his name here, actually being out there and being able to go and look at, at, at what's happening versus what's actually being said. So so you know that that to me has to would have to be part of a fund manager process when when investing in Chinese companies. Yeah, and perhaps then it's kind of. Um... It's an advantage of some of those really big funds that uh, they have a bit more clout. Maybe they can um, kind of get a bit more access. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Dave. That's uh, that's interesting and nice to have a nice to have a bit of a positive angle to end on. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for having me. That's all we have time for, I'm afraid. It feels like we've squeezed a lot into an hour and we've squeezed even more into the magazine this week. We have all the usual comments, including a great piece from Phil looking at how to analyse a company's cash position and some lessons for surviving sell-offs from Mr. Bearball. 
And in the fun section, Mary McDougall's looking at ways to capture the tech sector's next leg up. There has been some big news this week, but the biggest news of all has to be the collapse of Wirecard, which we've looked at over three pages to ask what went wrong, what the scandal could mean for the UK fintech industry, and how digging into history to look at some of the most famous stock market frauds could have helped avoid a lot of pain. Meanwhile, COVID-19 continues to make its mark on the section, with news from Shell and BP and two very different responses to the low oil price, and the collapse of one of the UK's biggest retail landlords, along with signs of trouble in the housing market. But the biggest trouble of all could be brewing right under our noses, and that is the huge expansion of consumer debt in the UK. James Norrington explains why investors should be paying attention to this ticking debt bomb and how policymakers need to think carefully about how they defuse it. So thanks to all of our guests, Philip, Phil and Dave, and thanks to my excellent co-host, Megan. Don't forget to listen to Megan's interview with Carson Block on Monday to hear more about the business of outing stock market frauds. And of course, thank you all for listening. Make sure you come back next week to listen to the story from the other side of what looks like a new Cold War when we visit the good old US of A. Take care. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.